Welcome to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration. I appreciate everyone who's here tonight and all of my family and friends uh, that have come to support me uh, and the Zoom Zendo that's there. It's good to see everyone. On August the 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech on the Capitol Mall. I was 17 years old, and when that report came on the evening news, there was no celebration in my house. There was fear, fear that there were so many black people in one place, and they were asking for equal rights. They wanted to be like white people. It was fear in my household. During the COVID shutdown, a lot of my well, all of my volunteer activities uh, were put on a hold. And so I started working on my mother's genealogy. And some people, when they start doing this kind of work, find all sorts of skeletons in the closet, siblings they didn't know they had. What I found was the roots, the deep roots of my family's racism. The topic of my talk tonight is how my Zazen practice and specifically the third paramita, the perfection of patience or tolerance, helped me deconstruct my delusion of myself as a good white person and how my Buddhist practice now helps me face my own racism and that of others. My grandmother, Luella McNabb, was born in 1886 in Cherokee County, North Carolina, in the heart of the Smoky Mountains. Her, uh, my grandfather, her husband, Milford Edgar Barong, was born a year earlier, and he lived just up the hill from the McNabb farm. This was about 20 plus years since the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. My grandparents were born into a society where every aspect of an African-American's life was regulated by what was then called black laws, or Jim Crow. The year before my grandmother was born, my great-grandfather, Lorenzo Dow McNabb, purchased 96 acres of Hiawassee River bottom land from the United States government. These were lands that had been recently confiscated from the Cherokee Nation. And these people who had lived on these lands for millennia had been forcibly relocated to Oklahoma on what was later called the Trail of Tears. This is where my grandmother grew up, on this Cherokee land. And the only document that I have with my great-grandfather's name written on it is a bill of sale from the United States government for those 96 acres. After my grandparents married, they were 18 and 19 at the time, they moved to the Copper Basin, Tennessee, which was only about 15 miles away from where they lived in North Carolina. It was a booming mining town, and there were really good-paying jobs there, but there were no black people in Copper Hill. In fact, there were very few black people at all in uh, these Appalachian hills. The, the valleys were steep and not very wide. Uh, 
the land was rocky and none of this was suitable for cotton or tobacco farming. But what the people of Appalachia practiced was what I would call a polite racism. They were people who lived in all white spaces with very few black people around, mostly because they were not allowed, and never showed overt hostility to black people as long as they were out of sight and kept their place. Sometime after my mother was born in 1911 in Ducktown, Tennessee, the McNabb Barongs moved to Corbin, Kentucky. In 1920, the population of Corbin was 3,406 people. It was a town founded in 1898 by the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. It actually had a small black population, uh, people who worked as porters and baggage handlers, and their wives and daughters worked as domestic servants for the white people in town. It was a diverse community, actually. There were immigrants from Ireland and Poland and Germany. And in addition to the traditional religions of colonial Virginia, Episcopalianism and Methodism, there were Catholics and Jews. After World War I, there was an acute nationwide labor shortage, and the LNN was trying to expand its roundhouse there. It was unable to recruit enough workers, white workers, from the Corbin area. And so it brought in 200 black men from up north to finish work on the roundhouse. On October the 31st, 1919, a white night watchman on the railroad was brutally attacked by two men and his paycheck was robbed. <clears throat> it was said that they were two black men. By late afternoon the next day, a man by the name of Pistol Pete Rogers had whipped up a mob and people started going from house to house on Saloon Row, which is where both the black and the white railroad workers uh, lived. They started pulling black workers, black men, out of their beds along the, from the boarding houses along that area. And as the night went on, the mob became more violent Shots were being fired, and they started to invade the homes of the black people who had lived in this community for years. By midnight, almost every single black person in the city of Corbin had been rounded up and herded down to the railroad station. Afterwards, we did learn that there were a few black people who were protected in white people's homes but basically the entire black population of the city of Corbin was herded into empty boxcars. And these boxcars were attached to the southbound train, which left Corbin at midnight. This was a racial cleansing. My mother was eight years old at this time. And I am sure she heard the shots. My grandfather and my her and my great uncle, her uncle, also lived in the town and worked for the LNN, worked for the LNN Railroad. And I'm sure there was great fear in that household that night. When I was 
doing my genealogy research, I came across information about epigenetic DNA. This is a protein that can form in your body when you are exposed to great trauma. It actually attaches to your DNA and can suppress or uh, activate a gene. And this is how intergenerational trauma gets transmitted from parent to child. I'm sure my mother experienced great trauma that night. As I was doing my research, I found out later in reading some of the court documents of the uh, legal cases that were brought after this happened, that the two assailants were actually white men in blackface. Shortly after this, in 1920, my grandfather moved his wife, Luella, and my mother and her two sisters to Etowah, Tennessee. This is about 150 miles south of Corbin. Etowah is another Cherokee word, meaning muddy water. And this was another L&N Railroad town. It was established in 1907 to house a workforce for a new maintenance facility, someplace between Knoxville and Chattanooga. As the LNN was looking to buy right away along this area, they could find no white farmers who would sell to them. Finally, they focused on a small black community called Grady. And it was here they found some willing sellers. These were black families who lived on what was really marginal swamplands, not desirable farmland at all, hence muddy water. Etowah was the town where my mother grew up. Etowah was the town where I was born. And I lived in Etowah until I went to, was ready to go to school. And then, after we started school in Los Angeles, I lived in Etowah every summer until I was 18 years old. This town was a typical railroad town. There was a depot on one side of the main street, and on the other was the commercial district. And behind that, the stores, were the, was the community laid out in a nice, quiet grid. I never crossed those railroad tracks in the 18 years that I lived there. And it was only when I started doing my research that I discovered there was a second community there. It was about the same size as Etowah. About 2,000 people lived there. It was an unincorporated area called East Etowah. And it was where the farmers who had originally lived in Grady were still eking out a living up on the hillsides of Star Mountain and where the black railroad workers lived. The only black person I knew when I lived in Etowah was Zora May. She was a young woman, probably not much older than I was, who helped my grandmother cook and clean when her eight grandchildren showed up. I do remember sometimes when she had to work late, my Aunt Rita would drive her home. In retrospect, it was probably not safe for her to walk through the streets of the white city of Etowah across those tracks to East Etowah. The other place where I had contact with black children was actually at the movie theater. On Saturday, we would go to the movies to see Cinderella, the original, uh, Lady and the Tramp, Old Yella. And when you walked into the theater in the concession stand, on one side of it was a water fountain with a sign above it that said, Whites Only. 
and on the other side, another water fountain that said colored. All of the black children would be herded into the theater and up into the mezzanine above the main floor. And I can remember hearing them laughing and giggling up there. And I don't know if it was because they were excited to be at the movies or if it made them uncomfortable to actually be in a room with so many other white children. In 2017, my sister Mary Margaret and I went back to visit family in Etowah. We were walking in the back side of the main street down the alleyway, and I, we noticed that up on the walls of those brick buildings were white painted arrows pointing down to the back doors. And in that, on those arrows in faded paint were the words, colored entrance. As I said, we actually moved back and forth from Los Angeles to Etowah when we started school. In Los Angeles, I went to an integrated school. And I can remember when I was about 10 years old, my mother taking me aside. And it wasn't a talk about sex like you would think. My mother said to me, honey, you know, you really can't date a black boy. Those, their black families, they just don't have the same values that our family has. Their family structure isn't like our family structure. They're not the same as us. And you know, honey, if you had children, they wouldn't be accepted by either family. My family practice a polite racism. The racism of my family's Southern Jim Crow heritage actually can seem pretty benign, but it is as ugly and as corrosive as the KKK burning a cross or a lynching rope. It tolerates as normal the embedded racism of our American society. When we lived in Los Angeles, we actually moved twice. And in retrospect, it was my mother's white flight that was triggered when the black communities came too close to where we lived. After I finished working on my uh, family genealogy, I sent a couple of the chapters to my siblings. Um, I heard nothing. It's a little bit unnerving, um, but you know, maybe people just didn't want to read. Uh, when I was in Tampa in 2021, uh, visiting my brother Pat, uh, his oldest son, my nephew, Christopher, had died suddenly at age 51, and I was there for the funeral. We were sitting in the kitchen and at the kitchen table and talking. And then all of a sudden, my brother Pat, who is actually, he's a CPA and has worked for many years as an exec in the telephone company. He stood up across the table from me. And all of a sudden, his face got very hard and his eyes got steely cold. And he said to me, how dare you call me a racist? He says, I'm not a racist. 
I'm not like those white supremacists. How dare you call our family racist? I was speechless. And then I was talking to another one of my brothers, Dan. He worked for many years at the University of Hawaii, and he was a union steward when he was employed. And finally, I asked him, you know, did you get the story of Grandma? And he said, yeah. He said, but you know, I've lived in a multicultural society almost my entire life. I'm not a racist. I don't, what do you mean calling me a racist? I was speechless. And then there's my brother, Hugh, who spent his entire career, 36 years, with the Los Angeles Police Department. When we were raising our families and tending to our careers, we didn't talk much about what we did. But uh, since he is retired, I've been trying to get him to tell me about some of the things that happened when he was a patrolman. He worked most of his career in Watts, and he was on duty the day the Watts riots started. All of a sudden, as we were talking about some of these things, his face became hard and cold, just like my brother Pat's. And he looked at me straight in the eye. We were on FaceTime, and he said, you know, George Floyd was not murdered. That officer was using exactly the same use of force techniques that I was taught. I was speechless. Mary Margaret, my only sister, is a person that we talk every day. And I had told her a lot of these stories already before I had written my documents and sent them to her. But I was telling her some of the stories that I hadn't written down. And one of them was the story about my grandfather as he started to age, he developed TIAs, small strokes. And Zora May was still working for them, cooking and cleaning and taking care of them as they were aging now. And my grandfather had a small stroke, a TIA, and he fell to the floor. Zora May came over to help him up. And he turned and he looked at her right in the face and said, what's this nigga woman doing in my house? My sister was immediately defensive. Papa wouldn't say something like that. You know, and then she started to make excuses. She said, you know, when people have strokes, they say things that, that they wouldn't otherwise. Oh, ladies, they'll swear like sailors. I was speechless as my sibs reacted to my story and the things that I had discovered in my research. But I did not turn away from them in anger. I had experienced exactly the same disorientation and shock that they were verbalizing to me when I had started to uncover uh, these deep roots of racism in my family history. These are the people that I love most in the world. Couldn't respond to them in anger. 
and I had already begun to learn and incorporate how my racism was inherited. This was something I was born into. I didn't have to be, learn to be a racist. It was in my environment that I grew up in. I absorbed it through my skin. This is the polite racism. My family's polite Southern Jim Crow racism. It seems benign, but it is corrosive and ugly as the KKK cross-burning. Because it sees racism in this society as normal, just how things are. The third paramita, the perfection of patience or tolerance, was what helped me shape my response to my sibs and to learn how to incorporate what they were saying to me and how to respond. The third paramita, kasante in Sanskrit, and I'm sure Mio would tell me I'm not saying that correctly, is translated as patience, tolerance, or forbearance. And in Sanskrit, it means literally unaffected by, able to bear, or able to withstand. It is the capacity to withstand suffering and injustice while resisting the negative emotions of anger at the perpetrator and still being able to respond with love. Sometimes patience can have the connotation of passivity uh, or weakness, but the perfection of patience is quite the opposite. It's a perfection of tolerance or forbearance that does not respond in anger or surrender in despair when faced with injustice. It's the capacity to tolerate the fact of what is ultimately true about oneself and the world. We live our life with a rationalization, trying to protect our idea of a good self, a permanent good self and to blunt the sharp edges of reality around us. It is the third paramita, the perfection of tolerance, that does not turn away when faced with the emptiness of self and the emptiness of my idea as a permanent self who is a good person, a good white person, who is different or separate from all of these other people. This is polite racism that sees the self as a separate, enduring presence and not like those black people and not like those white racists either. Martin Luther King spoke out against racial injustice eloquently, but never in anger. He actively resisted the injustices in our society, the Montgomery bus boycott, he went to the Birmingham jail. He also campaigned against Proposition 14 in California in 1963. Does anybody remember Proposition 14? One person, <laughs> thank you. Proposition 14 allowed any person who owned four or more units of housing to refuse to sell or rent to anyone they chose. This proposition 
passed in California with a 67% plurality. Every single county in the state of California voted in favor of this proposition. I'm sure my parents voted for it. Sometimes um, people looking at Buddhism see it as a passive religion. And some of the Jakarta tales of the Buddha before the Buddha can sometimes maybe lead you along this path. They talk about the Buddha offering his body to a starving lioness so she could feed her cubs, or about the Buddha being attacked by robbers and giving them not only their money, but their clothes and everything they had. This bodhisattva is characterized as a selfless, non-retaliatory saint who suffers severe abuse without anger. This extreme tolerance raises a question of what are the limits, really, of tolerance? And when might anger be appropriate? To patiently accept cruelty or injustice distorts the third paramita. It's like listening to a racist joke silently or passively accepting my Sib's denial of our family's deeply embedded, his inherited racism. It's the difference between giving your life to save another versus letting someone take your life out of hatred. In the first case, it's an example of extreme love to give your life to save another. In the second, it requires a radical kind of tolerance to not hate the assailant, but to hate the deed. This is the paramita of tolerance. Talking about race in our families, as I discovered, and in our sanghas can be supported by the third paramita. It's a tolerance that does not turn away from unpleasant truths about ourselves. To understand ourselves as products of our social history and not a fixed enduring personality. To see both the dependent nature of everything and the reality of the ongoing change of ourselves and the universe. This is true reality. I was reading about plantation tours that they're now giving in the Deep South. And the docents in these buildings are now taking visitors to see the places where the enslaved people lived. And they're talking about how these enslaved people built these beautiful buildings and ran the plantation farms and the kinds of abuses uh, and the suffering that they experienced at the hands of the overseers and also of the owners. On TripAdvisor, there's a lot of negative reviews about these tours. People are saying, you know, I didn't come here to, I came here to see this beautiful building. I didn't come here to be made to feel bad about my country. This is like my sibs not wanting to feel bad about their mother and their grandparents. A polite racism is a delusion that blocks one's capacity to face what you don't know 
about the enslaved people's contributions in this country to the building of our country, to its economic success, but on the backs of the social degradation of African Americans inflicted by Jim Crow laws and the ongoing legal discrimination like Prop 14 here in California. The third paramita, the perfection of tolerance, is what gives you the strength to face the incomprehensibility of emptiness and that it is empty of itself, which actually sounds like a pretty theoretical, philosophical point. But when you look at it through the lens of white privilege, it's really concrete. To not see myself as separate or superior to another person who happens to have a different skin tone, but to see both of us as empty of existence except in our relationship to each other. This is the third paramita. In conclusion, I'd want to say it's really easy to be discouraged about how deeply embedded racism is in our American society. Can we ever overcome this? How will we ever overcome the patterns of housing in this country that disadvantage people and disadvantage their children and the educational opportunities they have? or the police violence against black bodies. But as Buddhists, we have to embrace change. And the words of the harmony of difference and equality that we chanted tonight, which said, in the light there is darkness, but don't take it as darkness. In the dark there's light, but don't see it as light. Light and dark oppose one another, like the front and the back foot walking. Tolerance, the third paramita, is the deep study of self which confronts the non-duality of all things without turning away. This is the gateway to compassion for oneself and for one others and the wisdom to know how to confront our own racism and that of others. On the day before Martin Luther King was assassinated, he was addressing the sanitation workers in the city of Memphis. He encouraged them not to despair over what seemed like intractable injustices, but that it was only in the dark that one can see the stars. Be patient with yourself as you learn how your own family and our society has socialized you to think and act from a position of white privilege. Practice tolerance with others by not ignoring the racial slur and not accepting racial injustice as normal either. React not in anger, but with love. So what can I do? In 1968, James Baldwin said, there's great urgency for us to learn the actual history of US and Europe, a concept that's as 
daring and controversial then as it is now. There's lots of resources now to learn about the actual history of the United States, and that's something that we can all do. The 1619 Project was predictably controversial when it was published by the New York Times. I would also recommend as a place to start is Ibram X. Kendi, History of the United States, or History of Racism, called Stamped from the Beginning. He starts in the 1600s in Europe with the slave trade that the Portuguese started bringing slaves in 1619 to the New Americas. After the George Floyd murder, Doralee Katona and Linda Decker put together a syllabus for a course that they called White Privilege in the Dharma. For six weeks, we met to read some of the history that we didn't know and to reflect on how racism was embedded in our sanghas and what it is that the Dharma gave to us to meet that racism. That group continues to meet once a month on the second Thursday. We have conversations about our continuing efforts to live as anti-racist. You're welcome to join. If you'd like, you can send Adorali an email and she'd be glad to put you on the announcements for that Thursday uh, meeting. You can also show up and support state and local institutions. Uh, Karen recently uh, told me about a museum that we have here in Sacramento. It's the Sojourner Truth African Heritage Museum. And it was started in 1996 by a local African-American visual artist, Shona Daniels. We are planning as a Sangha in February, which is gonna be Black History Month, to visit that museum. And if you'd like uh, to join us, you can leave your name on that pink pad that's over on the side uh, table and we'll send you a date and time. There's also a, a, a bill that was passed two years ago in the, in the state legislature. It was AB 3121, reparation proposals for African-Americans in, in the state of California. They have just published their interim report, and I've left a copy of that also on the side table. It contains a wonderful summary of the injustices that have been suffered by African-Americans here in the state of California, legally. And it has some proposals for how we might give them financial compensation for their economic losses. Take a look at it. I'm sure there's some history in there that you didn't know about the state of California. I also brought some reading lists. Uh, if you'd like to take them, they're on that side table. Thank you for listening to my family's story and how the third paramita has continues to sustain me as I exploit, explore the roots of my family and my own racism. And how that third paramita and my zazen practice helps me to respond not out of anger or despair to what occurs in our society and to situations that I'm sure we all meet every day to help us 
respond to them, not with anger, but like Martin Luther King did, out of compassion and great love. Thank you. Yes, Jim. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Oh, thank you for your talk, Sarah. That was really well thought through and uh, tied together. Um, and I appreciated knowing all the um, history, the family history that is, uh, yeah, so deep in, in, the, in the history of our uh, national crime or shame. Um, but I just wanted to mention today I went to the, uh, just on a kind of last minute after I looked at the weather not raining for once, I, I went to the uh, Martin Luther King Day march that happens uh, that leaves out of City College and runs down to Broadway and back and uh, well they oftentimes they go clear downtown but they decided not to do that uh, today, but anyway, you know, you at some point in your talk, you said, "Well, what can I do?" And and there was a suggestion today, and it was it was a really it was really something you could do, uh, everybody could do. The organization that uh, puts this on is called MLK 365. The IB idea being that you know the our efforts to be anti-racist and and loving to all people. Um, should continue throughout the year. So the speaker, uh, or the or I took to be the the organizer of this march, and apparently he has been the organizer for 30 years uh, of this march um, because he was congratulated by several people for having done it that long. And he, when he what he said was, you know, on this march today, or some, or if it isn't on this march today, you know reach out or speak to or cross the barrier of, um, you know, the racial divide and the cultural divide and, you know, talk to somebody, you know, um, you know, commune with somebody, um, take the risk of, uh, you know, saying hello to somebody that you normally would not, you know, have dialogue where you find, find an occasion or find some, and it's such a small thing, you know, just a, it's a small thing, but um, and I, I didn't end up doing it today, but I, I'm going to do it. <laughs> He's, and he said, if you don't do it today, you know, do it because it's 365, you know, we you have, you have all year, you know, so uh, that's just a small thing to, you know, to find some way to cross the, the, uh, you know, cultural, racial divide that, you know, exists uh, so starkly still in our in our culture. Um, so just uh, something I hope that complements your, your talk. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. You know, growing up in the South, white eyes never met black eyes black face eyes, ever. It wasn't safe for a black person to meet eyes with a white person. And I remember that so vividly because, like I said, in Los Angeles I went to an integrated school. 
I had to learn completely different body language and interactions when I was in Etowah. And I, I go out of my way now, actually with everybody, but specifically, if there's someone that I don't know that's unfamiliar, to try to, especially when I'm out walking or something, to say hi and meet their eyes. And I just remember with great sorrow now looking back in retrospect, the fear that I saw in so many people's faces when I was a child and a young woman growing up in Etowah. Thank you. That was, a, that was an amazing talk. Appreciate you putting the energy into it. Um, when you were talking about um, your, you know, your parents, or not your parents, your siblings' reaction to you, kind of made me think of a, a discussion I had with my um, brother-in-law. I guess it was in last August. Um, you know, he's yeah, he's white, but um, you know, he's, despite being federal law enforcement, he's, you know, he's always voted Democrat. You know, he's definitely not someone I would ever consider to be a racist or anything. But, um, you know, we were talking about schools for our kids, and he was complaining that um, his school gave a book about Harriet Tubman to his daughter. And he was upset. I'm like, why would that bother you of all things? He's like, well, I don't want my daughter to feel guilty about being white. And I was just, I mean, it just seemed like, I just couldn't imagine him thinking that. I, I was literally, what made me think about it is when you said you were just mute, I like, I hadn't, I couldn't respond. I had no, I didn't know how to address that, you know, because it seemed so crazy to me. I kind of wish I had said in retrospect, well, I learned about racial injustice as a kid and it didn't make me feel bad about being white, <laughs> you know, but like, how, how do you react to something like that, you know, like if I encounter something like that again? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think being speechless is not the appropriate response. <laughs> but I think, it, and it's taking that thing as what is it that's causing that fear? You know, and part of it is this image of self, right? I'm this white person, you know, and I'm, I have white privilege. And even if I don't know it, everything and everybody around me in my society gives it to me, <laughs> even if I don't ask for it. And so what is it that makes, well, losing that privilege? I think that's maybe what people are saying when they are, they don't want to be, feel bad about it. Maybe that's really what is at the, rate, at the bottom of it. But I think it, it's hard because you have to look and love that person, but not love what they're saying. <laughs> it's that non-duality. Yeah. One of the things I, I have found helpful in the discussion group that we have at once a month is talking about this, these things with other people um, in the Sangha about, well, what do you say when someone says that? You know, it's a safe environment to try out some responses. And I've, it's been helpful to me to talk about that, just like what you said. Now, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he saw the look on my face and so quickly changed the subject, you know, like, 
but but it was a conversation that needed to happen yeah I just I mean yeah. I, I regret not saying anything but I was I was literally I mean I you know there's a fright right. fleas yeah fright freeze flight whatever oh I know I, 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 I tend I, towards freezing that seems yeah. to be my mo for a lot of things you know yeah. but um yeah yeah but I mean so I guess I have to go to the class to get the advice on what well I, but I think just even talking about and that might be something I don't know does anyone have some ideas about how to respond to uh, something like that, Val? Not that I know really how to respond, but I think, I mean, when, when you said you were speechless, you know, after each of your encounters and, and you were speechless, I think it's, that's, that's okay. And then you say, what do you mean by that? Can you explain it to me? I don't understand. And, and just let them talk and just listen. I mean, that goes to your loving the person and, and not getting angry. Um, I, I, I go to anger very quickly. <laughs> but um, I, I think if you, you're intent on a, a dialogue, you have to hear more about where that's coming from. And, you know, it'd be really tough, I think, to, to bring that up again. But, you know, it was said. So, I don't Go ahead, Linda. You need to unmute. Um, first of all, Sarah, I, I just wanted to... Um, express my admiration to you for all the work you've done, um, especially since we've gone through this class together. Um, and uncovering this story of your family is, is um, well, it's worth a book. <laughs> so, and um, yeah, you're brave. You're a brave person. And thank you for, for doing what you've done. Uh, as far as what to say, I wish I could remember the exact words, but I, I heard some, I heard, um, might have been Ibram X Kenai, who talked about this with, um, this argument that they, I don't want my child, white child to feel guilty or ashamed. And he said, why would they feel that way? You know, tell them, help them feel that, uh, they've gained knowledge and they're learning things and they're learning material that can help them in the world and help their black friends in the world. You know, it's, it does not have to be, it does not have to be um, a shameful uh, story. Um, and it seems uh, it just, I don't know. I mean, I raised my, kid intentionally to be very um aware of of uh, history and everything i he never in his life have i heard him explain anything about uh oh i felt so ashamed <laughs> no he felt empowered to do something you know to be part of something else so Jody has her hand up. 
Um, I just echo what Linda said, and I think if um, uh, I, I think it's more a reflection of uh, the the father or the brother of whoever's uh, feelings of um, perhaps um, unexplored or unrealized, unconscious feelings of uh, you know bad feelings about. Um, things like that that have happened. The the question really is like, why would a child feel bad learning that history? And they would not necessarily. And I think the, the best example is when we look at the difference in the generation's um, response to uh, uh, LGBTQ stuff and gender fluidity and, and that kind of thing. Um, my son's generation is totally different than my generation. And his younger cousins, maybe 10 years younger than him, um, are even more open than, than his generation is. So I think a lot of that is really a projection of that person's own stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm with a lot of the rest of you. I am often also stunned at some of the responses that, that I have heard and don't always know how to proceed. Sometimes it's easier when it's not a family member than a family member because there's so many other things involved with the family. Um, but yeah, that's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jody. Dave? Yeah, I recall uh, Maybe six or seven years ago, it was, it was number. It was around the time that Trayvon Martin was killed by that vigilante guy, and there were some discussions at the place I was working at the time, and I really came away with the feeling that so many white people don't view themselves as racist, but then they just really have not had any kind of real interaction with black communities. And um, and I certainly did as a youngster, and and I learned early on, yeah, that, you know, uh, being white gave me an out at times that the black kids didn't get the out. And the problem isn't that I have privilege. The problem is that they don't have the same leeway. You know, it shouldn't be viewed as a privilege, it's just how everybody ought to be treated, you know, uh, the, and, you know, and I, and I remember just ha- having kind of a discussion on this stuff, and, and the, the people, I've t- they just really didn't get it, because they didn't really understand how their lives, why their lives, why isn't their life like mine, instead of thinking, why isn't my life like theirs, you know, they, why isn't their but then a couple of days later, one of the guys came up, a younger guy, and he said, you know, I was thinking about what you said, and, and I think you're right, because he recalled a time when he was a young adolescent, and he got in some trouble with his buddies, and the cops took them all home to their parents. He said, if I was black, I would have been in juvie. And, you know, he, but, it, you know, it kind of, like I said, I, I think people, if they, I will tell a story now, and I think 
I was about 12, and I had a paper route, and I was riding my bicycle. It was a morning paper route. It was dark. I got a ticket to go to bicycle court because I didn't have the light on in my on my bicycle, and that was one of the rules. So I went down to uh, to, to bicycle court on the appointed day, and it was me in a room full of black kids. And all of these black kids were given some sort of penance to do, picking up trash at the park or something like that. Got to me, and you know, I thought, oh, good Lord, I'm going to have to spend a Saturday at the park. And the, the magistrate fellow said, looked at me and got confu- confused look on his face and said, uh, suspended sentence. Now, I could, I did not put two and two together. I was too dumb to put two and two together at the time, but I got the heck out of there and I just could not believe my good fortune. But it was years later that, yeah, you know, that it dawned on me what had happened. And it, the lesson might have been lost on me, but it was not lost on that room full of black boys. And because, you know, that was, that was just the, the first, their first go-round with the thumb being put down on them. But, you know, but, uh, no, it's, but for people who haven't gone through those experiences, they just, they don't relate to a different way of life, I guess. It's the society we were born into. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we have to accept it. <laughs> and part of it is is seeing it, as you did, Dave, yeah. Holly, would you like to say something? This is a good friend of mine <laughs> from Florida. What time is it there, Holly? <laughs> oh, a couple minutes before midnight. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I just listening um, to you and your friends there talk, um, I'm struck with, for those of you that are more saneful in terms of staying away from the media and news now, but I, I was born in this state from where I'm talking to you, although I've lived lots of places, um, and grew up in a very segregated South to the extent that the help that my parents had once a month on the beaches, we had a bus service where the black people had to be off the beach by five o'clock. To my dismay, um, it's not talked about today, but it still happens today. And I was thinking, I know that you know what's been going on in Florida and we're in in a situation where even when one takes the time and effort to deal with speaking with people and listening to people, as Sarah so adeptly explained here, um, it's very hard now because there's lots of punishments involved coming down from the governor and the legislature about what you can talk about. So literally have teachers leaving our public school system. We have professors. I live in Gainesville, leaving the university here where I taught for one of my three careers. 
And it makes it harder. I live on a plantation ground, for heaven's sakes. We tried to get the name changed, and there are about 3,200, I think, residents here of various backgrounds and incomes. But I was on the big board at the time, and we couldn't get people to do that, even understanding that we had, amongst all the families here, only three families that were black which we only have one left over the last like 10 years. So I think it takes a lot of patience. Um, and certainly I share with uh, Sarah some of her thoughts uh, and expression of how, how she grew up. And I know that little town where she lives. <laughs> um, and I just think it takes extra effort right now with what's going on, not only in our country, but for those of us here in Florida, it's, my friends and I, it's very, very difficult. Uh, and we all have black and brown friends. Um, but you even think about that in a different way now, uh, in talking, for instance, to their children, because you sort of wonder, like, who's listening? Because we literally, as you probably have seen on the news, have people tracking people. I mean, it's insane. So... It's something I struggle with now that I haven't for some time. And uh, I appreciate Sarah listening to you this evening because um, I need to think about this now and maybe come up with some better solutions for myself and my friends because of what we're dealing with. So I wanted to say that. Thank you, Polly, for sharing your life there. And it's good to see you tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else on Zoom would like to offer something? Anyone else here? Thank you all. And talk to someone that you may not otherwise talk to.